You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is an unprecedented gathering of labor leaders because the attack against worker rights that we've seen from this government, the attack on the rights of all Canadians, which has been unprecedented. Bill 28 was a direct threat to workers' rights and to the charter rights of all Canadians. It invoked the notwithstanding clause to undermine some of our most fundamental rights. That regressive attack on workers united the labour movement like never before. I am so proud of CUPE's frontline education workers, 70% of whom are women and that they stood firm. They went out on a political protest. They brought their message and their anger to more than 100 sites across this province. They took on the Ford government, and the government blinked. This morning, Doug Ford announced that he would rescind Bill 28. I know there might be a little bit of doubt about that, but we have it confirmed. He will rescind Bill 28. And that's a credit to the power of our members and workers and organized labor here in Ontario and all across Canada. We've demonstrated the power of public sector and private sector solidarity. And we've shown that when our rights are under attack, our movement is strong and that we will stand up for each other. I am so grateful for the incredible support and solidarity of our members all across this country. We've been receiving messages all week. But let's be clear, we're not done yet. There are 55,000 education workers here in Ontario who still need a fair deal that helps them make ends meet. And we are going to stand with them until they get a deal that works for them and their families. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. And I don't have an exciting costume for you today, but here I am. I want to thank every single labor leader who is here today. But most importantly, the labor leaders who are not here with us today. Those workers who are currently on the demonstration lines. Education workers, my colleagues are so very grateful for the solidarity and support everyone has shown. Our team never left the table. Our goal has been, and it remains, to get a fair deal that respects workers, students, and families. We listened to the Premier's announcement today, and like many of you, we were very confused. A lot confused, and Colin, shout out to the questions, because... The delay, and I want to thank you all for your patience, was to receive in writing the Premier's intent. We are no longer in a world that we can go without having things in writing. We have received and can confirm that the Premier will introduce and support legislation 
that will repeal Bill 28 in its entirety. And this bill will be repealed in a manner that ensures that the legislation will be deemed that it was never a law in Ontario in the first place. As a gesture of good faith to this announcement, QP OSPCU will be collapsing our protest sites starting tomorrow. We hope that this gesture is met with the same good faith by this government in a new proposal at the bargaining table as soon as possible. And I will be clear, we're here waiting right now. The time is ticking. Let's not forget why this all started. This started because the Ford government didn't want to pay workers, the lowest paid education workers in this province, a living wage. This started because we know the reality in our schools. They're anything but normal and stable due to constant underfunding and lack of investments in the direct services students need to be safe and successful. This started because education workers have been overlooked, underappreciated, and legislated into poverty. This started because co-workers, the vast majority of whom are women, we realized our power and we decided to stand up and fight back. These workers, these custodians, early childhood educators, EAs, clerical workers, <clears throat> lunchroom supervisors, tradespeople, maintenance, and so many more, deserve a deal that has been freely negotiated, that keeps them out of poverty, and allows them to meet the needs of their students. It's the work of my friends and colleagues that repealed this bill, and it is unprecedented. The organization of members moved the government to this place, and the organization and mobilization of members will ensure a real deal is achieved at the table now that this draconian legislation has been removed. And I want to take a moment to speak directly to Ontario education workers, my co-workers and our members. We have our bargaining rights back. And I am as committed as I've ever been to getting a deal that works for each and every one of you. You led this movement that brought labor unions together with parents and concerned Canadians everywhere. You led this movement that showed the people of Ontario that you can stand up to a bully, look them in the eye and say, hell no, not today. And I want to say I am so very proud of every single one of you. And we're going to be going back to that bargaining table to continue the fight. Thank you.
until you win. All right. That was the QP News Conference, really. I mean, a whole bunch of different unions gathered in solidarity in Toronto today. As we hear in, in breaking news, Ontario School Board's Council of Unions says that protest sites in Ontario will be collapsed as of tomorrow. That means that Ontario schools will be back in session. This, of course, after... 55,000 education workers plus uh, walked off the job last week uh, after even despite of, I should say, uh, the Ontario Premier Doug Ford invoking the notwithstanding clause to force them into a new four-year contract and make it illegal to strike. Well, Doug Ford woke up this morning to polls showing that Ontarians overwhelmingly did not agree with what he had done and blamed him for the ongoing job action. So now we are hearing uh, from Ontario's Premier Doug Ford this morning that he is willing to repeal the notwithstanding clause to get back to the table as long as the union promises to get back to work and back to the bargaining table. And that is what we expect to happen again beginning tomorrow. By the way, I'm Tamara Cherry. I'm your host for today, News Talk Today. What a day in news it has been. Coming up after the break, we'll hear a little bit more of what Premier Ford had to say a little bit earlier today, how we got to this point. And then I want to hear from you, one 1010 Are you a parent in, in Ontario of a school-aged child? How are you feeling? What a whirlwind it has been. Again, I'm Tamara Cherry, your host for News Talk Today, today. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And coming at you today, buried under, I don't even know how many inches of snow we got in Saskatchewan over the weekend, but it was a lot. It was enough to bring out the snowblower, which I'm not going to lie, I was excited about. I am Tamara Cherry, your host of News Talk Today today. And we are talking about Ontario. If you're an Ontario parent of a school-aged child, I'd like to hear from you. 1-855-633-1010. Or you can send me a text message, 71010. Again, the number 1-855-633-1010. How are you feeling today? What a whirlwind it has been. Of course, right before the break, we had breaking news in a union uh, news conference that brought together union leaders from right across uh, the country. QP agrees to withdraw job action and return to the bargaining table. That means that your kids are going to be back in class tomorrow. Now, of course, the parents of Ontario school children woke up this morning to a second day with their kids at home or their grandparents' home or scrambling to find anybody to watch their kids so that they could go to work, not because of a global pandemic, not because of a snow day. And uh, but of course, it was because. Education workers remained off the job. It's no doubt frustrating. It has been no doubt frustrating on many levels. As Premier Doug Ford said this morning. Test scores have fallen. Parents are exhausted. A generation of students are struggling. And as much as parents may agree with Premier Ford, a weekend poll showed that most Ontarians blamed the government for the ongoing job action, even though school support staff walked off the job in defiance 
of the government's unprecedented move to use Section 33 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Of course, we're talking about the notwithstanding clause, which he invoked last week to force 55,000 education workers into a new four-year contract and to make it illegal for them to walk off the job. Well, Ford said today that the government's focus is on keeping kids in the classroom and that that focus prompted the use of that notwithstanding clause. However, he woke up today to that news, as I mentioned, that uh, many Ontarians were not on board with that. And in his morning news conference, he appeared to relent. As a gesture of good faith, our government is willing to rescind the legislation. We're willing to rescind Section 33, but only if QP agrees to show a similar gesture of good faith by stopping their strike and letting our kids back into their classrooms. And what a day it was after that news conference. I think that we originally thought we were going to be hearing from the union leaders at, I I think it was 10.30 this morning, and then it was pushed to 11, and then 11.30, and then noon, and then they gave us a bit of a surprise by stepping up to the podium just before we went to air at noon today uh, and announcing that, indeed, after going back and forth with the government, clarifying some of what was said and getting it in writing, uh, that the notwithstanding clause would be repealed, that they will be heading back to the classrooms tomorrow and, of course, back to the bargaining table. So how are you feeling? one 855 633 1010, or you can text me at 71010. Uh, but of course, we were hearing just before the break, as I mentioned, uh, the first person to the microphone today was uh, QP's national president, Mark Hancock. He was surrounded by a multitude of union leaders who represent together millions of private and public sector workers across Canada. This was an unprecedented gathering of union leaders, as Hancock said. Uh, Bill 28 was a direct threat to worker rights and to the charter rights of all Canadians. This, again, according to the CUPE national president, uh, he said that he was so proud of CUPE's frontline education workers that they took on the Ford government and that the government blinked. So what do you think? Is that right? Who Who is coming out as the winner? Who's coming out and the loser in all of this? Of course, um, I don't think that anybody would disagree with the fact that when kids are out of the classroom, especially with how much school they missed during the pandemic, that they are ultimately the losers in all of this. And I apologize to anybody calling in right now. It appears that we're having some problems with the phone lines, but I can also go to the text board where a lot of people are texting in. Uh, you know what? Somebody texting in from Toronto saying that um, the union, the unionized employees' right to strike will only put into the Constitution in 2015, and that if it was such an important right, it would have put in in 1980. I disagree. Um, the fact is that it is a right that was in the Constitution. So, I mean, if it just seemed it just seemed a little bit crazy that uh you know so early into this the the Ford government would be throwing out the notwithstanding clause. I don't think that they anticipated how angry people would get um and, and let's not forget too in in the last provincial election uh Doug Ford and his conservatives had a lot of support from unions in Ontario. And that no doubt helped um, in their getting reelected. Uh, and, you know, somebody else on the text board texting in from St. Catharines area saying that it's easy to get the government to blink when you're holding hostages. And of course, I understand that's, that's how some people might see it. 
But just to play the devil's advocate, I'm a, I would guess that a lot of unionized employees who are told that they have to go back to work, that they're being forced into a contract and, and denied their right to strike, we're, we're also probably feeling like the government was trying to hold them hostage. So it will be interesting to see what happens come tomorrow when we go back to the classroom uh, and and back to the bargaining table. Are we going to see a deal anytime soon? If we don't, what is going to happen then? Doug Ford said this morning in, in the previous news conference that he wanted a guarantee upon rescinding uh, this, this notwithstanding clause. He wanted a guarantee that the uh, unionized employees would remove their threat to strike. So how does that happen if you can't come to a deal and if one side is not agreeing with what the other side is is doing when tensions are this high, will they be able to get to a deal anytime uh, soon? Thank you, everybody sending in text messages. Lots of text messages coming in. We're still working on fixing the phone lines. Uh, and we do appreciate Bill and Lindsay, whoever else might be calling in uh, for staying on the line. But you know what? One of, one of the other pieces of news that we woke up to this morning is that we could have potentially been seeing uh, a general strike starting next week. And of course, uh, next Monday is when we're expected to hear the Ford government table their mini budget, their fall economic update, uh, during which we are expecting to hear about a budget surplus, which certainly wouldn't have looked very good in the context of having extra money laying around that they could have potentially put into a union deal. So what would this have looked like had we not heard the announcement that happened today? Well, there could have been unionized employees all over the province outside of the uh, education sector walking off the job, seizing their economic activities in a show of solidarity. One thing that we heard today uh, loud and clear from the union officials is that what they were hearing was that Canadians, uh, you know, more broadly outside of Ontario, Canadians were upset with this notwithstanding clause being used because they felt like their rights were being trampled on, their charter rights to, uh, you know, uh, walk out on strike if, strike if they feel like the, the government is not bargaining in good faith or if they can't come to a deal. So, so much to discuss. We are going to be talking about this a little bit more also later in the show, more broadly uh, for our listeners who are listening from outside of Ontario, uh, more broadly in the context of this notwithstanding clause being used um, in the first place, and now that it has been repealed, what can this mean? Is this setting some sort of precedent, either locally or nationally? What are union? How are unions looking at this? We're going to be speaking with the labor expert on that a little bit later on in the show. And if you're on Twitter, even if you're not on Twitter, if you've been watching any of the headlines over the weekend, you may have noticed that Elon Musk, the brand new owner of Twitter, the multi-billionaire. Um, he doesn't really seem to know what he's doing when it comes to Twitter, but who knows? Maybe that's just me, armchair quarterbacking. Coming up after the break, we are going to speak with our friend Carmi Levy about what the heck is going on on Twitter, because honestly, it is difficult to keep up with the news. Uh, and, and beyond that, we've got an excellent segment that I'm really looking forward to about an unexpected and very delightful rare encounter that a BC woman had with an underwater creature uh, not too long ago. I am Tamara Cherry in as your host for News Talk Today, today.
You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And your host for today is coming at you from snowy Saskatchewan. My name is Tamara Cherry. Thanks for joining us. I love Twitter. I have used it for many years. It started way back in, oh goodness, when did I join? Probably around 2008, 2009, 2010, something like that. I was working at the Toronto Sun and I remember that my then employer tried to incentivize us tweeting about our stories by implementing some sort of point system. I don't remember what it was, but anyway, it got me on Twitter and I haven't left since. I love it for news. I I love it because it gives me perspectives that I haven't seen before. There are a lot of things I don't like about Twitter. And one of them is uh, Elon Musk. I have muted him, but now I follow a parody account of Elon Musk, which is pretty funny. What the heck is going on with Twitter? To walk us through the big Twitter mess that is this past seven days is tech analyst and journalist and friend of our show, Carmi Levy. Carmi, how are you? I am great. Great to be back. And just to answer your question, Samara, March 2009 is when you started. And uh, you've got you've got quite the feed going on there. So if you aren't following... Look Mary at yet, you! Do follow Tapping her. away okay. while I'm talking, doing your research. <laughs> okay. March 2009. Carmi, how long have you been on Twitter for? Uh, oh, goodness. I think since 2007. I, I suppose I should check that out, too. Yeah, sometime around fairly early, but just because as a tech guy, I sort of had to be able to use it. Early of course. On. So, so walk us through, Carmi, what, what has been going on this past week for people that have been out of the loop? I mean, it's hard to avoid these headlines, but essentially <laughs> Elon Musk, even going back further before a week, Elon Musk, uh, he wanted to buy Twitter for a ridiculous amount and then he didn't want to, and then he was almost being forced to. So he said, okay, I'll buy it for whatever, what was it? $44 billion? Mm-hmm. Yep. The, the, the part that he did not own. He'd been buying up shares in March um, and he got to about 9% ownership, and he thought that that was going to get him a seat on the board because he's been a pretty active Twitter user for a very long time. Of course, he's got huge followers on the platform, 114 or so million, and uh, he felt that if he owned enough shares that he would have a voice. And then uh, it turns out that according to Twitter's bylaws, he didn't get a, get a seat on the board, and they kind of shut him out. So that prompted him to say, that's it, I'm going to offer $44 billion <clears throat> to buy the rest of the company that I don't already own. And, of course, that started off this whole back and forth. What's it going to be like under Elon Musk's ownership? He then got into an argument with Twitter's leadership over the percentage of bots. Leaders said there weren't a lot of these automatic, script-based, you know, non-human accounts on the Twitter platform. Elon Musk said otherwise and basically said, look, you've got a bot problem. You lied about it when I offered to buy the company. I shouldn't be paying so much. I want to back out of the deal. Um, eventually, they, they sued him. He agreed to buy it, but I don't think he really has his heart in it. And, of course, the deal closed a couple of weeks ago. And it's been you know, the two words that come to mind for me ever since, dumpster fire, because that's exactly like this is what no you kidding. get with Elon Musk. It's what you get with every other company he owns. Uh, no question the guy is a genius. No question the guy can disrupt existing uh, um, industries, you know, reusable rocketry, electric vehicles. He is he's a modern day renaissance man, but he's also a little bit on the edge. And it's pretty darn clear that all of that is on absolute display now as he takes over Twitter and tries to write what was honestly a sinking ship even before he showed up. So he's basically making a bad situation worse. And anyone who's been using Twitter for a number of years is wondering, should I stay or should I go? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I've really been wondering that. But as I said, like, it sucks because this is 
this is a platform that I've historically really enjoyed. And it's a great way for me to talk to my audience. So what is it that Elon Musk thinks that Twitter has been doing wrong all these years? He calls himself a free speech absolutist, and he has complained very loudly against Twitter's policies around moderation over the last number of months and years. Basically, he feels that there shouldn't be any moderation, that you shouldn't have your your tweets uh, suppressed or suspended or removed because they violate any rules. And basically, anything goes. And so the problem here is that, of course, Twitter has, you know, as much as, and I share this, your your exact same sentiment. I love Twitter. It's kind of like the conscience of the internet. If you really want to know the pulse of what's happening right now, you go on to Twitter. And if you want to get your message out immediately to those who you follow, Twitter's the most efficient way to do that. So it's kind of a darling. It's not the biggest social media platform, not the most profitable, not the one that grows the most, but it's kind of the one that most of us hold close to our hearts. And so, uh, but the problem here is there's always a dark side to technology is that Twitter has been known because of the way it's built, this open architecture. You don't have to give permission to someone to follow you. You don't have to friend them. Anyone can Mm -hmm. follow anyone else. It's wide open which basically means it's it's like a wonderland for trolls. It's a wonderland for those who would abuse others. Uh, and Twitter has needed better moderation to rein that in because there have been massive amounts of, of, of abuse on the platform in over the years since day one. And one of the reasons why the platform is not as big as it probably should be, around 300 million people use it every day compared to across Facebook's universe or Meta's universe, Three billion. So most people either didn't bother showing up on Twitter to begin with because they said too abusive. I don't want to. Or they signed up, were abused, were stalked, were 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 tracked, trolled, whatever, and then decided to get off. So you know, on the one hand, you have Elon Musk saying wide open for everyone, but then of course that only it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. It's going to make all the bad mm-hmm. things that made Twitter a terrible place for for a decade and a half even worse. Yeah, like I I feel like our house has been overthrown by drug dealers and you know we're we're all living in a crack house right now or something. Okay, so mm-hmm. so one of the things that Elon Musk wants to do is to ch- start charging people for the little blue check mark that you see next to uh, quote unquote verified users and and this little blue check mark which I'll point out I don't have and I I'm following you now Carmi and I see that uh, you don't have one either. But people nope. it's generally for people like journalists, celebrities, people who might um fall victim to other people pretending to be them. And so they show the Twitter elite, hey, this is who I am. Here's my driver's license. I don't know what they need to show. And they get this little blue check mark. Now Elon Musk is essentially saying anybody can have that little blue check mark for a price. Why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because for a guy who has said that fake accounts are a huge problem and he wants to crack down on it, he now introduces paid verification check marks, which essentially make that the biggest joke going. In other words, you don't really have to be Barack Obama, but if you want to spend eight bucks a month, you can pretend to be him. So they're essentially taking this this checkmark system, which was was originally supposed to imply legitimacy, and they're 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 mocking it. They're violating its original ideals, and they're essentially turning it into a pay-to-play system. On the flip side, there's the and we don't talk about this all that often, and we probably should. There's the business side of Twitter. Twitter has to make money. Twitter has to grow. Twitter has to attract more users. Twitter has to keep advertisers on the platform too, and. It has to figure out new ways to make money beyond advertising. 
So that's why he's charging for these verification checks. It's eight bucks a month. It's under a program called Twitter Blue, which is basically their subscription service. Pay eight bucks a month and you'll get additional services and accesses like maybe longer videos and longer notes. And you'll be able to post different things and you'll be able to monetize your channel. And we're seeing that across the across the social media spectrum. Everyone's tra- you, you basically get the basic service for free. And if you want to have the premium, you pay a little bit. Netflix does the same thing. And so, which all sounds well and good, but the problem here is, is that you're now taking something that used to be about legitimacy and you're stripping that away, which of course means it's open season while we open up a new revenue stream, which is good and ensures the survival of the platform going forward. It also means that a lot of those new users are going to be trolls who happen to have a credit card and want to make it look like they're Donald Trump or Elon Musk or anyone else. And so I'm already starting to to see in my feed more misinformation, more accounts that mm-hmm. look kind of iffy, and I'm kind of wondering why are they there. It's just my experience. It's just anecdotal. But based on the people I've spoken to over the last few days, just to kind of see if it's just me, there is an uptake in this, an upswing in it, and it's worrisome. Mm-hmm. And with Oh, even from Elon Musk himself just last week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, Elon Musk, Musk put out a tweet from a news source that puts out disinformation. Uh, incredible. Mm-hmm. I got to end it there. Carmi Levy, thank you so much for, for joining us today. A pleasure as always. Of course, Carmi Levy is a journalist and tech expert, and you can find him on the Twitter. Who knows for how long, though? Coming up after the break, this is a story you won't want to miss. This was probably my favorite story of the weekend. I read it in the Globe and Mail over the weekend. Excellent interview coming up out of British Columbia. I'm Tamara Cherry for News Talk Today. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Those are the gleeful squeals of a British Columbia school teacher as she made a rare underwater encounter just off the coast of Vancouver Island. I am Tamara Cherry, your host today for News Talk Today. And that school teacher slash diver slash I'm sure many, you you probably wear many hats, Andrea. Her name is Andrea Humphreys and she joins us now from Campbell River, British Columbia to share her story with us. Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm really excited. I I understand that you're you're in high demand, and we can now that this video that you posted on YouTube has gone viral. We can get into that in a minute. Minute, but first, just set the stage for us. What were we just listening to? Where were you? What happened? Just walk us through it. So I was with um, my friends, my dive buddies, and we had a friend, uh, or one of them had a friend visiting from across Canada on the east coast. And we decided to go to a local dive site here in Campbell River. And this person had never seen an octopus. And so we went out and I'm quite familiar with the dive site. I've been diving here now in Campbell River for three years and knew where octopus were. And so jumped in the water, geared up and we went in the water. And within three minutes, it was unbelievable. All of a sudden out in the open, sitting in a bed of kelp was this giant Pacific octopus. And at first, um, this octopus, we were giving it space, taking some photos and videos, and then it climbed on this person that had never seen an octopus, and it was just incredible. I was so thrilled for that person. Took a bunch of photos and videos for um, him, and and then it, the octopus climbed off of him, and I moved in, took some more photos, and then it started climbing on my camera, and 
and on my body. And that was just one clip of this 40 minutes that you saw of it climbing on my camera. And it was just, I was wow, screaming and talking underwater because I was so excited. And it was what were you saying? I probably can't repeat that on air, but it was like definitely. <laughs> holy crap holy crap holy crap pretty much paraphrasing but yeah pretty much (laughs) yes okay so Andrea like so just for us us folk who are not um you know regular divers like you are just tell us like this giant pacific octopus is this something that you would usually see out in the open or how do you usually see this octopus when you went looking for it well I guess what did you expect to see that day definitely not out in the open. Um, we normally typically see them in dens on their, it seemed to be for us like quite shy. And if they're out in the open, I'm normally they're hunting or mating. And especially during the daytime, they tend to be, we tend to find them more um, at night. So yeah, to see it out in the open and to have an interaction like this was amazing. Amazing. Okay. And now just describe this octopus for us because we, our listeners obviously aren't watching the video right now. How big was it? And, and tell us more about that encounter, because you didn't just get a hug from this octopus, did you? No, not at all. Yeah, so the octopus, I would say, was would have about like a 10-foot approximate like arm span from tentacle to tentacle, and definitely larger than a basketball. It's hard to describe how large it was, but um, you can see in like photos and videos. But it was, yeah, I it was definitely an encounter and a half. Uh, the octopus was crawling at first on my camera and fully engulfing my camera in my hands. But it was also reaching its tentacles through the camera and feeling the only exposed part of my body, which was my lip. And I could feel its tentacles like sucking on my lip. It felt like a vacuum cleaner is how I describe it. And I ended up with a hickey, a little hickey spot on my lip afterwards. It was quite hilarious. <laughs> Were you like, I know you were excited, but were you at all scared? Um, at first a little bit, but then looking at the colors of the octopus, they typically change color to like a dark gray, like a dark white, um, when they're feeling intimidated or threatened. So, um, I kind of just relaxed and let the encounter happen. And I did have my camera for the most part kind of in between me and the octopus. So I was a little less worried. Um, but I knew my buddies were right there and we were very shallow, like, 10 feet of water. So if anything happened, they would be there to help me. Yeah. And, and again, for anybody that hasn't seen this video yet, this, this octopus is like bright red, right? Yeah. It's a dark, deep, rich red. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So, so how long have you been diving for and how many dives have you done, Andrea? Yeah. I've been diving for approximately 12 years and I've done over 675 dives up to this date. Um, it's been just incredible to have encounters with life like this. And I just feel so incredibly fortunate and grateful to the underwater world that we get to experience as divers. Amazing. Okay. So we're talking for anybody just tuning in, we're, we're speaking with Andrea Humphreys. Uh, she is a school teacher and uh, she teaches special needs kids, in fact, uh, out in British Columbia. And she had a very close encounter just off uh, the coast of Campbell River on Vancouver Island with a giant Pacific octopus. What other sorts of things have you encountered in that area or really anywhere? I understand you've been diving all over the world. Yeah. What, what have been your coolest encounters? Uh, we, um, I love one of my other favorite, um, underwater species is the wolf eel. You have to look it up if you can't, if you can't picture it at all. They are incredible. They are eight feet long. They're, they're actually a fish, not an eel, but, um, they look like an eel underwater, but giant and they, they have the most grumpy, ugly face, but they are just magnificent creatures. Um, I've been buzzed by sea lions. I got to 
have a staring contest with a seal through kelp. It's just, it's been so incredible being able to experience this whole other world that's underneath our oceans. Amazing. And just as you were saying that, I Googled wolf eel and that is an ugly face, but wow, what a creature and what an encounter that would have been. What, what do you, I wonder like what you, what you bring into the classroom. You, you had mentioned off your air that you, you teach special needs kids in, in Campbell River, British Columbia. What story are you going to be telling them about this? Or have you already shared the story with them and, and, and did you show them the video? Oh yeah. I've shared the story. I've shared the video. Um, and it's, it's been great they love it I have kids at lunchtime still googling and going on YouTube to try and find my video and watching it again so it's it's been a really great teaching experience to be able to share and teach them about what life life looks like down there and and share my photos and videos and it's great that I'm able to capture that memory to be able to do that amazing so I understand that like I I first read about your story in the Globe and Mail over the weekend and as I said earlier I think uh, this was probably my favorite story of the weekend. So yesterday your video had like 10,000 views from what I understand. What what was it at the last time you checked? Uh, yeah, this morning, just before this interview, I checked again and it's went up to 53,000 views. It's truly gone viral. It's been a process. I really, I only post on social media for like friends and family and and at first when I had this video, they, they, they were all encouraging, you've got to share it with the news. And so I did, and, and I just shared it as a feel-good moment. The news has been so depressing lately that I just wanted to make mm-hmm. people laugh and smile and, and enjoy what we can see down there. So it's it's been a whirlwind. To I love that. What, what, so t- tell us, what is, we just got a minute left, Andrea, but what has the reaction been? Oh, it's been incredible. It's been really positive. Everyone's so thankful and just being able to educate people um, on the marine world and trying to just speak about marine conservation and being aware of what we're doing to our oceans because I see it down there. So, yeah. Well, Andrea, we so appreciate you taking the time with us today. I look for, I'm going to start following your channel because I want to see what other things you encounter. Andrea Humphreys is a school teacher in British Columbia. She lives in Campbell River, just off the, I believe it's the northeast coast of Vancouver Island or just on the northeast coast of Vancouver Island. Andrea, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having us. And I hope everyone has a wonderful day and protect our oceans. What a ray of sunshine heading into the second hour of our show. Coming up after the break, we will be hearing from uh, somebody who's got all eyes on the Emergencies Act inquiry in Ottawa. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And your hope for the day is coming at you from Regina, Saskatchewan. I'm Tamara Cherry. Looking forward to this next conversation. Uh, Michael Kemp is a criminology professor at the University of Ottawa, and he is somebody who whose commentary on the, well, what ended in the Emergencies Act being used, but the so-called Freedom Convoy in Ottawa and elsewhere earlier this year. His commentary is some that I've really enjoyed. He had his eyes very closely on what was happening back in February, and now his eyes are on the Emergencies Act inquiry in which, uh, you know, a decision will ultimately be made on whether the federal government was uh, justified in invoking the Emergencies Act to clear these convoy protesters. Michael Kampa is on the line now. Michael, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. 
So Michael, uh, if can we just start out by giving us a rundown or a summary of what we learned during last week's testimony before getting to this week? Because it's it's two very different things that are sort of being uh, discussed. Well, different locations anyway. Well, last week we wrapped up on the Ottawa occupation, uh, Freedom Convoy protest in Ottawa. This time from the perspective of the main organizers of the convoy themselves. And we learned a great deal about the fissures and divisions and competition between the factions of the main organizers. And it wasn't as though they were actively accusing each other of criminality, but they were throwing each other under the bus, sort of in terms of not being truthful to the main mission of opposing COVID-19 mandates, accusations that they had their own agendas, they wanted to get their hands on the money, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, one example of that, I guess, would be the uh, the so-called Diagonal uh, leader, Jeremy McKenzie, calling out uh, Tamara Litch for having, what was it that he called it, selective memory, when it came yeah. to what was happening back in February? That's right. Um, it all went in those directions. The original lady who got involved, Brigitte Belson, the trucker who was very upset about the convoy mandates crossing the border with her rig, she originally got in touch with Chris Barber, and through Barber, Tamara Leach came along. Uh, Belton accused Leach herself of hijacking the movement in her own interests, and Belton pointed out Leach was trying to buy property in Ottawa way back in January and February to set up a headquarters for permanent protest. This turned out to be St. Bridget's Church, which people may remember there was a subsequent uh, effort to buy this summer. And Belton said this wasn't part of the mission and so forth. And then we have uh, Belton falling a little to the outsides a little bit, Barbara Leach, Tom Marazzo, and Keith Wilson now, the lawyer that's representing Barbara and Leach in their criminal proceedings, they really make up the Freedom Corporation that we've been hearing mm. so much about. And they're accusing Benjamin Dichter of holding on to Bitcoin and not giving it all back, saying that Pat King uh, was a bit of a distraction. And yes, indeed, um, the idea from uh, Mackenzie Jeremy McKenzie, that Leach may have selective memory, that he was much more important than they're all letting on. But even with him and all of his rants, his racist rants and deplorable language uh, about sexually assaulting people and so forth, uh, the others just sort of said, well, it's not helpful, but he just tries to be a funny guy and they played it down. Hmm. We know that polls are showing that... uh by and large, it appears that Canadians have not changed their views that they held back in February. And that is that uh, many Canadians think that the government was justified in um, invoking the Emergencies Act. Just coming out of next week or last week before we get into today, uh, do you think that the needle should have or, or could have changed? And do you expect that to change this week? I think that People will go into this believing what they already believe about whether or not the Emergencies Act was uh, necessary. But I think that what will come out is that the needle will move on their understanding of why things were done the way they were. So mm. people had no concept before the degree of lack of function and terrible relationships between different police organizations, competition between the upper ranks of police organizations, political gamesmanship between police oversight bodies and municipal governments. This is the sort of stuff that criminologists like me have been looking into literally for decades. So it's no surprise to us, but it is a surprise, at least the depth of it, for citizens. So they say, well, no wonder 
they weren't able to mount much of an effective response. They were all too busy fighting with each other, um, second-guessing one another's plans, playing political games behind the curtains uh, to get rid of their opponents and settling old scores and that sort of thing. It's a wonder they had any time for any planning at all. No wonder the federal government had to step in with the Federal Emergencies Act. So I think that level of understanding will be good. But I will say this thing is not going to be a slam dunk one way or the other. The report is not going to say at the end that either Justin Trudeau is a genius and this was the perfect thing to have done, or this was an utterly incomprehensible act of tyranny that we invoked the Emergencies Act. It's going to say something along the lines of there were a thousand things that should have been done that were not done that regretfully brought about the use of the Emergencies Act, which was either just barely justified or not quite justified, but an understandable mistake, something along those lines, and then many recommendations for what we should do to fix all of this. We're listening to a criminology professor at the University of Ottawa, Michael Kempa. And, and Michael, if we can turn our, turn our attention now to this week, today, I know we've been hearing from the Windsor mayor. Uh, what do we expect to, to hear from the inquiry today and, and throughout the week? Well, now we're shifting over to look at things in Windsor uh, and Coots, Alberta. So we're starting up today uh, with the mayor of Windsor uh, and Mr. Drew Dilkins, and he's going through the response and explaining how he was coordinating a little bit differently uh, with his police service and up the chain through the province and to the federal government, having seen what happened in Ottawa and really outlining his belief that even if things were being cleared up in Windsor, it's very likely that they would have either rematerialized in terms of a protest a few days later, or they would have just moved somewhere else. He was very concerned that if they got the situation under control in Ottawa and people left Ottawa, they would end up back at the Windsor border. So he was unequivocal just before the lunch break at the commission now that he felt this absolutely was an economic emergency and by extension, a national security emergency. And from there, we'll go to Alberta. And, and are we are we going to be getting to Alberta this week? We are. Uh, that's I mean, Al- Alberta is interesting, too, because, I mean, that's where we have criminal allegations of a plot to actually uh, kill people that have come out that have come out of that that blockade. Um, do you think that that will be a focus of what was going on there? Oh, absolutely. That's where we go next after Windsor. And. What is interesting about Alberta in particular, yes, the catch of weapons that were discovered, allegations of a plot to murder RCMP officers as a form of reprisal for them having enforced uh, the laws to clear the blockade at Coots, Alberta. And Alberta at Lethbridge at this very moment, there's just been a convoy of uh, supporters for certain of the people who were charged around these conspiracies. So it goes to show you that these matters are not in any way, shape, or form yet resolved. And as we were hearing a little bit from Dilkins today, he believes, and others believe, and we're going to get more information in the next few days, how Windsor, Coots, Alberta, Ottawa, and other blockades in the country that were smaller were all connected in some way. Exactly. Yeah, because certainly when we were hearing from convoy organizers last week, they were trying to distance themselves from, you know, those who were in Ottawa were definitely trying to distance themselves with from those who were in Alberta in particular and, and, and in Windsor for that matter. Well, that's their general strategy for uh, presenting their case is to say this thing was so big and there were so many factions and groups on the ground that we couldn't possibly be responsible for controlling them all. But 
that doesn't mean that something being divided into factions doesn't mean that there's no strategy. It means that there are a bunch of factions running strategies, and some of those mm. factions will be connected across the country. So that's the detail I'm looking for in the next week or so is who on the ground or perhaps within organization in Ottawa was connected to Windsor, was connected to Coots, Alberta. It won't be all of them, certainly not. But there will be some groups on the ground, I'm quite certain, from the security reports that we've been reading posted on the Commission website from OPP and RCMP and CSIS, that there were some forms of connection, and we will get more detail in the upcoming weeks. Fascinating stuff. Michael Kempa, criminology professor at the University of Ottawa. Thanks, as always, for your insightful commentary. Thank you very much for the question. We've got more coming up after the break. I'm Tamara Cherry. Welcome back to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, everybody. Uh, My name is Tamara Cherry. I am your host for today, and I will be joining you again a little bit later on this week. So, of course, if you're listening at the top of our show about an hour and a half ago, you heard the news conference from a, a whole stage full of union leaders talking about the deal that they got in writing from the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, to rescind uh, the notwithstanding clause that was forcing them into a four-year contract. Uh, And of course, by them, I mean uh, Ontario education workers forcing them into a four-year contract and making their walkout that, that happened last week illegal. Well, Joining us to joining us now is Dr. Stephanie Ross, an associate professor and director of the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. Dr. Ross, thank you so much for taking the time. What a whirlwind it must be in your life these days. Uh, yeah, uh, it's been quite. It was quite a weekend. Uh, uh, today was a lot of uh, roller coaster watching um, events as they emerged, but it, it can't have been. Um, as bad as it was for the the leaders of the union, for the members who are waiting to find out what's happening, for the parents. So, yeah, I think we're all glued to our uh, computers watching uh, the press conferences. Um, so it's an interesting days in the labor movement uh, in Ontario today. No kidding. So why don't we just go back then to last week. What was your reaction when... Uh, the Premier Ford and his government invoked the notwithstanding clause to force um, to force a, a, four, a new four-year contract on these fifty-five thousand uh, support staff. Yes, Bill Bill Twenty-Eight was, I would say, an unprecedented imposition um, on workers. Uh, I, we've never seen the use of the notwithstanding clause uh, to, you know basically impose a collective agreement on workers without their consent and basically to take it outside of the realm of being challenged in court, right? So, you know, we, we live in a in a society that uh, is governed by rule of law where, you know, if governments do things that might violate our rights, we have the ability to challenge those those acts in court. And the Ford government, by invoking Section 33 of the Constitution, basically said, no, we, we are going to impose a contract. 
We know it's not consistent with the constitution of this country, and we're going to do it anyway, and we're going to insulate ourselves from your court challenge that's probably going to come by using the notwithstanding clause. And you could see how electric that move was, because immediately after that, um, both, I would say, unions, not just in Ontario, but across the country, um, took notice um, and began to mobilize their public support, their members, their resources. And I think, too, members of the broader public who are not necessarily in unions also saw this as an incredible threat because if it's possible for the government to use the notwithstanding clause to um, absolve themselves of obeying charter rights in labor relations, why not in other areas of public life? Um, there are a whole host of other things that Canadians care a lot about um, that could be subject to the notwithstanding clause. So I think it was an incredible overreach. Um, it was not necessary as a way to resolve this dispute. There are all kinds of other things that the government could have done. And I think that that was very much reflected in the public opinion polling that we saw last week from Abacus um, that showed not only that the, the public didn't buy the government's rationale for why they um, put together Bill 28, um, but n not only that, supported uh, broader uh, strikes beyond the school board workers uh, supported, I think this is an unprecedented development, almost 50% mm -hmm. of Ontarians supported workers who were not directly involved in the dispute to, to leave their workplaces and support those workers. I mean, that's a pretty mm -hmm. big misstep on the part of the government to mobilize so many people around this, this round of collective bargaining in the school sector. It's, it's, it's quite something. And I think the press conference this morning by the premier showed that he understood that he had, he had overstepped and he had to blink. You know what? It, it's interesting because, um, and, and we're speaking for anybody joining us now, speaking with Dr. Stephanie Ross, who is the director of the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. It's interesting to think about what sort of conversations would have been going on behind the scenes, both in government mm -hmm. and, and in labor circles, especially when we consider just how much labor representation from across Canada was on stage uh, during Absolutely. the union news conference. You called it on, on Twitter earlier this afternoon. You said that this has been an incredible masterclass in labor, labor organizing. What do you think, what, what was going on behind the scenes this weekend? Well, I think the first thing to say is that the, the school board workers themselves, Ontario uh, Council of School Board Workers, have been organizing for this round of bargaining for several years. They knew that it was going to be incredibly tough on the basis of you know, previous experience with this government. And you know their strike mandate was the strongest strike mandate I've ever seen in the you know history of my you know studying and observing labor relations um you know n not only did they have uh, well over 90% of their members voting in favor but uh they had a participation rate of like well over 80% of their membership so well over 80% mm. of the 55,000 workers were committed to this round of bargaining to to the demands that their union was negotiating that is an that is a, a a significant feat for any union. And so that is like really the foundation of this. The other thing that they did was they really won the public over. They won parents and the broader public over with their narrative of what was at stake. 
um, their their ability to show that their members were underpaid and chronically so that this is a a, a a feminist issue, a women's issue, because these are largely women workers in this unit, and that they were also bargaining for the improvement of the quality of public education. So, like, they won mm. the public debate on this as well. So those are two foundational things. But you're right. Over the weekend, there was an incredible amount of discussion going on, I would say, on both sides. So on, on the one side, there is all of the discussions that were happening um, amongst unions who, it must be said, you know, in Ontario have been historically quite politically divided. There, there has been, mm-hmm. I would say, since the 1990s, a lot of political division and diversity in Ontario's labour movement. You know, there's, there's not necessarily a, a lot of agreement or consensus on how to um, orient politically, like what political parties should they ally with, how should, how should um, unions cooperate around elections, um, how much do they support each other when they're in bargaining, etc. Right. So there's a lot of division, um, and it it it, it was like um, a magnet that that built a 28. I think created the the opening, the kind of a flash uh, point for those unions to realize like they had a stake in this in this negotiation. So I know there were discussions, conversations. Um, uh, meetings, um, emergency meetings were also being called um, for this week. So there was a very rapid mobilization going on. I think that um, Dr. Ross, array- I just I, I have one more question. I have one oh, more question sure. I want to get in. And I'm sorry to cut you off. We just a minute left. All. I'm just curious as to your take. Uh, what will support look like for Doug Ford and, and the Conservatives moving forward, given that given what has transpired over the recent days, especially considering how much support he had from unions? going into the last provincial election. I'm sorry, we've just got like 30 seconds left. No worries. I think I think that support has, is frayed, but it's not um, ended. I, I think that, uh, but I do think that he is um, on notice to, say, to basically say, okay, he can't take for granted those um, supporters in the construction trades in particular. And certainly he's made no friends in the rest of the labor movement. So if there was any idea that he, that his government could expand support in the rest of the labor movement. I think that's that's a dead letter. Mm. This will be so interesting to watch in the in the days, certainly with what the ta- what's going to be happening with the talks, weeks, months, and years to come when we consider the future of uh, this government. Doc- Dr. Stephanie Ross, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Of course, Dr. Ross is an associate professor and director of the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. I am Tamara Cherry, your host for News Talk Today today, and we've got a lot more coming up for you after break. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And you may or may not realize it, But the 27th edition of the annual International Climate Summit, a.k.a. COP27, got underway in Egypt just this past weekend. Now, I say that, and I being Tamara Cherry, hello, hello, I'm your host for today on News Talk Today. Uh, I say that because um, 
I, I'm curious as to how many people are are paying attention now. You know, we're in our 27th edition. Uh, we found out last week, I believe it was, that climate activist Greta Thunberg was not going to be attending. We also know that our own prime minister, Justin Trudeau, is not attending. So who is attending? Who's paying attention? And what sort of change can we expect from these sorts of uh, summits now and, and perhaps moving forward? Well, our next guest is somebody who is absolutely paying attention and from what I understand will actually be attending week two of COP27. Her name is Sarah Birch. She is the executive director of the Waterloo Climate Institute at the University of Waterloo and Canada Research Chair in Sustainability, Governance and Innovation. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me. So Sarah, let's just start uh, start off with what I I just alluded to there. Do you feel that um that this summit is is sort of losing its luster or for people who are there and for governments is is COP27 still a big deal? Yeah, I absolutely think it is. I mean, I think we have to take a step back and just, you know, consider the the um, events that we see unfolding around the world and just how important this annual opportunity is to to kind of um, accelerate action. So, you know, of course, we've seen some of the most um, costly and tragic extreme weather events um, unfold around the world over the last year, including, of course, the heat dome in BC and and the catastrophic mm-hmm. flooding in, in Pakistan and others. So, you know, we're seeing these, we're seeing that climate change impacts are not kind of a future distant thing that we're waiting to happen. They're happening right now. Um, and of course, with the war in Ukraine, we're having really important conversations about energy security and the cost of, of um, consuming fossil fuels. So all of that is kind of setting the stage for these negotiations. And this isn't a social event. You know, this is um, a, an, an opportunity for nearly 200 countries to join together each year to make real progress on implementing all of these commitments that they've set, these targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, protect communities, and and to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Yeah, you know, I mentioned two people who are not going, but we should we should mention, like as you just sort of alluded to, that there are an estimated thirty five thousand people from government, indigenous nations, climate groups, fossil fuel multinationals that will be or have already gotten on planes and headed over to Egypt in in hopes of, uh, you know hastening or hindering the global movement to net zero. So what are you what are you hoping will be accomplished at at this gathering? Well, this is a this is a really important opportunity for countries to hold each other to account and to say, you know, you made these commitments to reducing your greenhouse gas emissions by whatever percent by 2030 or 2050. How are you doing? And how can we plot out that implementation pathway to really deliver on those targets? And, you know, it's a mixed bag in terms of our progress, certainly. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm a lead author with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and we just released a big assessment a few months ago saying that we are not on track to limiting warming to less than um, 1.5 degrees, you know, above those pre-industrial average temperatures. So we're not on track. However, we are seeing, you know, nearly two dozen countries that actually have sustained greenhouse gas reductions that are on track. So it's a, it's a mixed picture. We have real solutions to climate change in every sector and every climate that are available to us now, not something we could say 20 years ago, uh, but we're just not making progress fast enough. And these conferences, this, um, you know, this series of negotiations is one mechanism for accelerating that progress. 
We're speaking with Sarah Birch, who is the executive director of the Waterloo Climate Institute. And and Sarah, I wonder, you know, I was just before this segment, I was I was rereading a story from the Associate Press that came out today. And I'm just going to read from the first line. It said, with the world on a, quote, highway to climate hell, with our foot on the accelerator, the United Nations chief on Monday told dozens of leaders to, quote, cooperate or perish on avoiding further climate catastrophe, singling out the two biggest polluting countries, China and the United States. So you just mentioned that that there are a number of plans that are that are moving forward and are and are working. How are those two biggest polluters doing and how important is it um, that they heed that message and get on with what is needed to be done? Right. Well, it's absolutely crucial that the United States and China show leadership. Um, Of course, there have been some significant moves as of late in the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act that really delivers some real investments for the energy transition there. Um, And likewise in China. But this doesn't you know, let Canada off the hook. In the past, it's been kind of a common refrain, you know, we won't move until China moves or we won't move until the U.S. moves. Mm. But, you know, ultimately, Canada is among the highest, if not the highest per capita greenhouse gas emitter, partly because we're, of course, you know, Mm. we're blessed or cursed, depending on your perspective, with abundant fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have a lot of emissions related to the production of them and we have vast bases to travel, you know, so we have a lot of transportation and building emissions. Um, so, but, so we have responsibility to lead as well, and also enormous opportunity to benefit from this transition, which is already underway, you know, away from fossil fuels mm-hmm. and towards more sustainable renewable energy. You mentioned earlier in our conversation uh, the war in Ukraine and, and how that has put a focus on, on our energy usage. I mean, I, I have found it interesting just being in Canada and seeing how the conversation has shifted from before the war we're talking about moving away from uh, using these fossil fuels. And, and now we're talking more and more about using it, um, especially what we have here in Canada, given what is going on uh, with Russia and Ukraine. Where do you see that factoring into the conversations that will be happening in the coming days in, in Egypt? Well, I'm, I see it as a really important reminder that there are multiple costs associated with using fossil fuels. And one of them is climate change. Another is energy insecurity and being tagged to that volatility um, and those, you know, the geopolitics of, of, the, of the fuels. And so renewable energy, you know, certainly have, helps us uh, become more energy secure, energy independent, um, and move away from from that instability. So I think, you know, in some in some circles, in some countries, it, it has been an enormous impetus to both conserve energy as well as really move meaningfully towards, you know, for instance, heat pumps in, in homes and away from natural gas and fossil fuels um, as the basis of our, especially heating. And here in Canada, that transition really has yet to take root. We have a very low carbon electricity system, thankfully, because of hydro and others. But we have a lot of work to do on how we heat our homes and how we fuel our vehicles. And so that's, you know, that's next up for us. Sarah, uh, we've just got a little bit more than a minute left. I'm just curious. I know you're going to be hand, uh, attending week two of COP27. What are you hoping to come home with? I'm looking out for what Canada will say and do when it comes to launching our first national adaptation strategy. So this is our national plan to protect our communities and our industries from the impacts of climate change. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky situation there because we don't have the equivalent on the adaptation side 
to that greenhouse gas reduction goal of net zero by 2050. So it's hard to envision what a resilient, adaptable Canada in 2050 might look like. So I'm looking out for uh, real progress there and uh, more moves in terms of climate finance, really the flow of funds from rich to lower income countries to protect them from climate change. All right. And do you know who, who is going to be there from the Canadian government contingency? Sure. Yeah. So our delegation will be led um, by Stephen Gilbo, by our Minister of Environment and Climate Change, and there is a whole delegation there to support him. Uh, so Canada also has for the first time a Canada Pavilion, which will be showcasing some of the policies that are being implemented at the federal um, level uh, in, in, uh, in Egypt as well. All right. Sarah Birch, Executive Director of the Waterloo Climate Institute at the University of Waterloo and Canada Research Chair in Sustainability, Governance and Innovation. Thank you so much for taking the time, Sarah. Thank you so much. And for safe travels to it. Egypt. <laughs> Thank you. Of course. All right. So coming up after the break, our final segment of the day. And this is one that you, again, I mean, when will I not say this? It's one that you won't want to miss. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it is a piece of technology that can what? See through walls? What does this mean? What could it potentially mean for your privacy? Why are researchers so interested in, in finding a way to see through walls? What do they hope to accomplish? We'll have that coming up after the break. I'm Tamara Cherry. You're listening to News Talk Today. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We've all done it. I know that I've done it. I being Tamara Cherry, your host for today of News Talk Today. And that is where you get a new device. Maybe it's a cell phone. Maybe it's a laptop, an iPad, an Apple Watch, a smart watch. I'm wearing one right now. And as you're setting it up, it asks you to put in your Wi-Fi information. And you think it's cool because all of your devices are connected on this one network. I've got right now my laptop, my my watch, my thermostat in my house, my television. They're all hooked up to the same network. And you think you've got this nice, cozy little network. What if there was a way for people to, in a way, see through your walls and find out what devices you have in there or even whether you might be home because your Apple Watch is showing that it is at home. That is something that a team of researchers have been looking into. One of them is a man named Ali Abedi. He's a researcher at Stanford University and an adjunct professor of computer science at the University of Waterloo. And Ali, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I, I got to say, Ali, I, I read a story about this, and I, I think it was in the Toronto Star this past weekend, and I just find it absolutely fascinating uh, what you have been able to uncover. So first, I, I gave a little bit of a rundown there in the intro, but what can, why don't you just bring us back to 2020 and what you realized about why our Wi-Fi networks and their security and our devices that are, that are in our homes? Uh, yes, so it was kind of... An accident back in 2020 I was working on a different project related to Wi-Fi and uh, I discovered that devices Wi-Fi devices respond to you in a way that you don't expect and I called 
this loophole that I found, polite Wi-Fi, because I found that devices actually respond to strangers that are not supposed to, actually. So, as you said, all devices are secured, so we hope that or we expect that someone who does not have our password should not be able to talk to or communicate with our Wi-Fi devices, but we found that it's not true. So where did this where did this take you? Like what sorts of questions did this this raise for you once you discovered that there was that that polite loophole? Right. So when devices respond, they send back uh, a confirmation that they received our data. So in the data that they sent back to us, there's no private information, right? So there's no direct danger there. But then we quickly realized that there might be some side effects to this. For example, because devices are responding to strangers, that the stranger might be able to infer some information from that wireless signal that your device sent back and be able to find, for example, where your device is. And that's my current project, actually. So, okay, so essentially what we're talking about is, I mean, when I think about the devices that I did earlier that I have in my home, my thermostat, my my laptop, my watch, my TV, why why could that be important for people who are who perhaps have not the best intentions? Why could that be good for them to know where those are? Because I, I would think that they wouldn't be too hard to find. Like, for example, if somebody was planning on breaking into my home, or is your thinking that this could just make it go faster or, or that there could even be more nefarious things afoot? Yeah, stealing your devices would be like one of the concerns, I believe. Like location information is important and it must be kept private because it reveals all sorts of information. For example, many of us carry a device like a cell phone or a smartwatch with us. So finding the location of your phone means finding your location, finding where you are in your house. For example, someone can figure out Mm. that Everybody is in the basement, for example, because all of the phones are in the basement. So they can infer that no one, for Mm -hmm. example, is on the second floor. And that's an opportunity for them to break in. That's one example, Mm -hmm. right, to emphasize like why Mm -hmm. uh, location information is important and it must be kept private. And it's interesting because, I mean, um, Ali, I used to be a, I was a crime reporter in Toronto for many, many years. So my mind is going to all sorts of different scenarios. I know that criminals uh, are fans of using GPS tracking devices. They put them on people's cars. They they might put one into your purse, that sort of thing. Uh, but also I think about, you know, even homicides that have happened over the years. That It's important for, if you're, if you're looking to kill somebody, then you want to know whether they're home. So this could, this could go from somebody potentially breaking into your home and stealing your iPad to, to something much worse. So from what I understand, you guys, in the end, you, you discovered that for a, a relatively small amount of money, you can get a device and, and how accurate is the information that that these devices are getting back from the devices inside somebody's home in terms of where that location is? How how much are they able to pinpoint and was it consistently uh, giving you accurate results? Uh, Our measurements in a house that has three levels, the basement, main floor, and second floor, and we tested all different floors and different locations, showed that uh, someone from outside the building can find the location of devices within one meter of accuracy. 
Mm. Wow. Is there anything that people can be doing to further protect their privacy and the privacy of their devices, if I can put it that way? Um, unfortunately, at this time, uh, as long as the device is on, uh, it, uh, its location information can be revealed. And by that, I mean even if your phone uh, phone's screen is off, but your phone is on, it can still, uh, we can still localize your device. So until uh, chipset manufacturers update uh, their devices to uh, introduce the solution that we propose, uh, I don't think there's a way to prevent it at this time. What solution are you proposing? Um, so this solution, I don't want to go into details, but it basically targets the main uh, functionality of this attack, which is measuring the time it takes for the wireless signal to reach a device and comes back. So we are trying to basically uh, mess with that timing in in a way that the attacker is confused about the location of the device. Mm-hmm. Kind of scrambling the message. I wonder, I, I know you said that there's not really any way to avoid this if your phone is on. What if you're in airplane mode so you're not connected to the network? Yeah, in that case, it's fine. If the device is off or on the airplane mode or your Wi-Fi is off, then it's fine. All right. So that might be something for people to consider uh, in the meantime while we wait for these tech companies to figure things out, hopefully, on your on your good advice. Um, you know, if if you're going to bed and you don't want people to know where your computer is, your laptop, your phone, whatever, maybe just... Hit it into airplane mode. Ali Abedi, thank you so much for taking the time. Of course, Ali is a researcher at Stanford University and an adjunct professor of computer science at the University of Waterloo. And uh, I mentioned it earlier, but if you want to read the whole story that I was referring to, it was indeed in the Toronto Star that I found it. So thank you very much, Ali, for your time. And thank you, everybody, for for joining us on this show. I am back, I believe, Wednesday. I hope there's nobody screaming at their radio uh, at News Talk 1010 in Toronto saying, no, it's supposed to be tomorrow. I believe I'm back on Wednesday. I will be talking to you then. Thank you so much to Corey, our producer, to Chris, our technical producer. I look forward to talking to you all in a couple of days. I'm Tamara Cherry. This has been News Talk Today.